0: This episode of Gen C is sponsored by Chainalysis.
1: Gen C is the generation of the new internet. In Gen C, the C stands for crypto, but it also stands for creators, the connected consumer, and collectibles, both digital and physical with on chain provenance. It stands for culture and characters, the ones we play in games and the companion ones that AI is building alongside us. It stands for community and digital citizenship and the new set of transparent and trustless tools being built to govern them. These are the people who were raised on a different philosophy on how they look at money, how they look at identity, how they look at privacy, and how they look at the hybrid, digital, and physical spaces being built all around us. And finally, how they reimagine their relationships with the communities and companies they interact with. We focus on how brands, large and small, are building for these audiences. Welcome to Gen C.
0: Sam, this has been one of the best weeks we've had in the world of Web3, I'd say in the past year. I'm feeling pumped. I'm feeling bullish. How are you feeling?
1: I'm feeling excited for so many reasons that I'm really looking forward to talking to you about.
0: I think one, we're coming off a nice bump in all different types of crypto prices, NFT prices. We're seeing digital art move. We're seeing Web3 leaders participate back in crypto Twitter. We're seeing all this awesome type of thing happening. And one thing I was very, very excited to see is one that I know has been a long time in the making, and that is Disney Pinnacle. Disney Pinnacle is Dapper Labs. This is their sort of new venture. I believe they're a franchisee of Disney, and they're launching this new sort of digital collectibles program that seems to be based on the Disney pins you can get at the parks. And I know that they're going to bring this to life in a really beautiful, fun way. What do you think?
1: So you and I have a mutual friend, Radima, who I think is going to be coming on the pod soon who's going to tell us all about how this came together. She's been waiting, waiting and waiting until the announcement was made before we could talk about it. So I am really excited to really dive into it with her. But in the meantime, I think I'm getting so much more bullish on the idea of digital collectibles for two reasons. One is the Disney audience today is young enough where they value physical and digital objects very similarly. And so the idea of having a pin, whether it's physical, whether it's virtual, you can wear it, you can trade it, you can do all that stuff is very native for the younger set. Right. Number two, and I think you and I have talked about this. I've heard Gary talk about it, but the idea that brands really need to find ways to get first party data so they understand their customers better and digital collectibles being like the access point for that. I think is so massive. And I keep talking about this even with my colleagues at Coindesk that it's not about NFTs going through the cycle of price speculation on art. That is exciting to me. That like is just, you know, what traders do. I'm so much more bullish on just like the idea of NFT, the technology underlying it that allows brands to like access communities directly in so many different ways. And I think Disney was such a good example of that second off. Like this week, I think it's tomorrow when we're recording this podcast is when Nike is doing their first apparel drop after the shoes that they did for the Air Force Ones. And like, if you think about the gameplay, right? Nike had this digital collection. They had 120,000. They didn't mint out. They sold like 96,000 of So 25,000 of those never got bought. But then what they didn't tell you was, hey, we bought this. And suddenly now only if you have it, can you get into our super secret level in Fortnite. So suddenly you're like, oh, I'm in the know, like, Millions of people play Fortnite, 95,000 get to play this. Oh, by the way, if you have that and you play Fortnite and this and that, you can also buy your limited edition Nike, our Force One sneakers. You only get those if you have the collectible. Now, did you buy those sneakers and you have the collectible? Cool, now we have our, this is not a JPEG shirt. Shout out to Bobby Hundreds also. So all the levels of like, if you keep coming along the ride with us, we're going to keep rewarding you. And then they keep teasing out that there's more coming for all of these folks. So I think when you look at that, and disney and i'm still getting more bullish oddly on starbucks being able to kind of, rest- sort of structure themselves and then i spoke to a car manufacturer also in the digital space trying to get him on the pod for next quarter who was all about digital car collectibles and the overlay that they're seeing in the future of their world and i think it's always been what you and i've talked about which is like Once we get rid of that sort of price speculation audience and we really think about foundational technologies, this is still a game changer. So I'm pretty excited about it. If you didn't know from my speech.
0: You seem impassioned, Sam, you feel like you're hyped on this, which is the way I feel like a lot of people are. That's the sentiment that I'm feeling on these days. Web3 is sort of come back alive. I wanted to shout out a lot of car manufacturers that are starting to do some really interesting stuff for having some fun conversations. And it's sort of breathing life into how do we think about this in a way that is not speculative. It's not purely about digital collectibles. It's more about interoperability. And it's funny because actually partner we work with, they basically integrated their NFT holders into their Roblox experience. Not that many people claimed the badge on 97, but I thought it was so awesome to start to see that connectivity happening between Roblox and NFTs and start to see that like cross-pollination across different digital realms and worlds. I know that's a thing we've been talking about a lot. So actually when we uncovered that last week, I thought of you, Sam.
1: I love to hear it. Avery, something else really got me excited this week. I need to play you this to start it. I've been really into playing audio these days. All right, I want you to hear this. Tell me what you think. Can you tell me how to say soft-boiled egg in Italian? In Italian, a soft-boiled egg is called uovo alla la coke. It's a popular breakfast choice in many parts of Italy, often served with toast or bread soldiers for dipping into the yolk. Well, how do you say soft-boiled egg in Korean? In Korean, a soft-boiled egg is called Simon Giran. It literally translates to boiled egg. All right, so I'm not gonna say that ChatGPT has the best pronunciation of Korean or Italian, but I made a video that I posted up on LinkedIn, which is three minutes of me talking to ChatGPT. If you have the app on your mobile phone, you hit headphones and suddenly you can have a conversation. And I started to ask it business questions. First, which was like, not not a business question, but tell me how to boil a soft boiled egg because I wanted to know the recipe. Then I was like, tell me it in other languages. Then I said, Give me recipe ideas then i was like what are names for software like restaurants and i said in new york city and i came up with names that were actually like relevant to neighborhoods in new york city and i just thought to myself as a creative companion it just was amazing what are your thoughts on audio assistant ai
0: so i don't know if you know this but vayner we actually pioneered a lot of brand work in the voice front around the 2018 era. We did some great stuff with partners like Diageo and JP Morgan Chase and many others. And Gary was very bullish on all things Alexa. And it's funny because we're actually starting to see that sort of trend come back around. We're working on a couple initiatives and in that as well, because I think it was cool to talk to Alexa and you know it was interesting. And there's some element of like, conversational sort of voice and brand building that was really fun, but we're seeing a whole new resurgence in this that's powered by AI because the assistants are so much more knowledgeable and so much less limited than, you know, they were six, seven years ago. So I think it's actually going to be something we see a lot of coming soon. We should probably have on one of these fabulous pioneers in the space because I actually think 2024 or 2025 are going to be big years for sort of audio resurgence, just like we saw with Humane last week.
1: And I got to say, The Alexa experience these days is really wants to be more than it is. Once we try out some of these more advanced voice AI tools, I keep wondering, like, why Alexa wasn't the first one to really nail this. At this point, I've literally unplugged my Alexa because I'm getting so much better results from other ones, which is not a shade on Amazon, because I think Amazon pioneered this. But I do think we are going to see tremendous amount of companion AI voice opportunities, whether it's humane, whether it's what's happening on our phone. I think the AirPods are such a big input device. It's an area I'm very excited about, but I also think people are not realizing how easy it is to walk around, get some quick tips from an AI based on things that it can find factually based on research and utilize that in your business practice. I'm just really, I was really jazzed by it. (laughs) I saw Bezos in his cowboy hat and I'm never counting Amazon.
0: Was unparalleled.
1: Yes. I also don't fade the like unbelievable ring that he gave his fiance, Lauren. So props to the person who made that. I had many people, because I put it up on my Instagram stories, wonder if it was something I generated in AI when it first came out. And I was like, no, this is actually legit. All right, Avery. We have an amazing guest coming right after the break, Daniel Paez. He's the vice president and executive producer of Gods Unchained. Gods Unchained is one of those Web3 games that people cite as great examples of success. It's a card-based trading game, kind of more Magic the Gathering Pokemon. It's quite popular. And they're part of the family within Immutable. Immutable Labs is really pioneering Web3 Gaming at a pretty epic scale and doing some tremendous work. So really excited to hear a little bit more about the gaming industry through a success property like Gods on Chain, and we'll get to them right after the break.
0: Chainalysis is the premier blockchain data platform. Crypto businesses, financial institutions, and government agencies utilize Chainalysis data and services to answer their biggest questions about the blockchain. As regulators and policymakers work together to pass legislation that provides clarity for crypto businesses and protects consumers, they have the chance to do so with unparalleled data and research into the crypto ecosystem. Demystify cryptocurrency and gain greater visibility and insight by visiting Chainalysis.com
2: slash GenC.
1: All right, we are here with Daniel Paez. Daniel is the Vice President and Executive Producer of Gods Unchained. We'll learn all about what Gods Unchained is in a second. We're really excited to have Daniel here. We've been diving a lot more into the world of gaming and game environments and the economics around gaming and all that kind of stuff, which I know Daniel have a lot of opinions about. But first, Daniel, looking at your history, I know you were at Blizzard and Activision. You're now with Immutable. You're on the Gods Unchained project would love to like know how you got into gaming and what you love about the industry, what we should know about the industry.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think it was kind of born out of a, a rather frustrating moment that many people are going through now was a layoff at a tech company I was at. I used to work in sales for tech. And um, my wife goes, why don't you just try to move into something you like doing? And so I actually found a job that popped up at Blizzard as a pricing manager for the publishing team. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I love economics. I was a massive, massive gamer, huge fan of Blizzard. Let's do it. And yeah, lo and behold, it took about five months for them to call. But I ended up there. That's kind of like getting my foot in the door. That's kind of like how I started out. But what really helped me was one, just loving working on things you enjoy playing yourself. And the other one was um, I was in a unique position where I can kind of really geek out about player data and player statistics and just like strategy as a whole and i just went headfirst into that um, spent almost six years at blizzard across all their titles i was there when they launched overwatch hearthstone as well and a number of other wild WoW expansions started working a little bit on call of duty and then nearing my six years there i transferred over to activision so blizzard belongs to activision and that's to work across all their games. But the truth is, it's like 99% Call of Duty. And so I started working Call of Duty there on the finance team. Really interesting learning about Call of Duty. But within the year, I realized I was quite bored. <laughs> and that's the thing with these huge organizations is they're very siloed and static and things are very much kind of rinse and repeat. And just kind of one day, I realized I was incredibly bored and decided to make the plunge into Web3 Gaming. and Went through a couple studios before landing at Immutable.
0: Wow. I love that story of just, you know, being in a huge company and being like, this is awesome, but what's next? What attracted you to the world of Web3?
2: Oh, good question. Um, one of my backgrounds is economics. And so I always found it fascinating, especially like digital economies and games. And when I was leaving Activision, I was kind of in between EA and a startup I heard of called Big Time Studios which recently launched a token and made a bunch of noise. And so I ended up going to big time and as director of monetization and game economy. And those first six months there, I was like going to like grad school. It was crazy. It was, you know, nearing the peak of the bull run and just learning. I had known a little bit about blockchain technology as well as the crypto space, but nothing crazy. And just diving headfirst into that right near the peak was a huge, essentially, school of learning for me. It got me geeking out even more about the Web3 space. And yeah, it's a very nice little intersection of two areas I love.
0: And just to double tap on that a little bit, you know, you mentioned you've been in the space for a while, you've been in Immutable for a while. Where do you think that we are in terms of this like Web3 gaming arc? Are we at the very beginning stages? Do you think gamers care about this yet? Is this, you know, established? Where do you think we are in that arc?
2: I think of three phases, we're entering phase two. And so the first phase, you had your very speculative bubbles, like your axes and those type of games. During the bull run, where it was actually very easy for studios that had never made games before to raise a lot of money and be able to create games. However, making games is very, very hard. And that's kind of where we saw like the end of phase one with the end of the bull run. Phase two, which is, I think, where we're going to be nearing the tail end of this piece as launches come live in the next 12 months is we had a lot of actually very senior game developers jump into the web 3 space and they've shipped games they've made games before they know how to make games and so i think the games that are going to be coming out the next 12 to 18 months are actually going to be very very high quality however their economy is going to collapse this element of like a web 3 economy and player-to-player trading what players value now these shifts in perspectives that players have versus traditional Web 2 is completely unknown by Web 2 game developers. And having worked with a number of different studios who had a lot of these developers, you realize that, that they're very much thinking, I can just kind of copy-paste skins in a game into NFTs and everything will be fine and dandy. But the truth is that's not how it works. And so I think we're going to have a lot of high-quality games have imploding economies and they're in this phase too. And then we'll kind of like move into phase three, which is there's going to be a good balance of people who are making good games and making sustainable long-term game economies in there.
0: I love it. And gamers have been pretty resistant to Web3. And, you know, at least that's what I've heard from the gaming communities. There's been a little bit of friction or, you know, of, I guess, divergent opinions on the, you know, the value of Web3 for gaming. We've got like Vitalik on one side and we've got the mainstream gamers on the other. But now we've seen a little bit of blurring of these lines as maybe, as you're saying, we sort of enter this phase too. We see Nike and Fortnite and EA. We see Ubisoft, and Amazon, and Immutable. We've seen Roblox start to maybe even soften up on their stance on NFTs. Do you think this is signaling kind of a perception shift in gamers? Or are these just sort of big companies who are dabbling and trying new things?
2: Yeah, no, that's a great question. So I think the first one is looking at where there's resistance to Web three gaming and where there isn't. So in the East, actually, there's there's not pushback. Korea, Japan, China, all like the eastern based studios and player bases. There's no resistance to Web three. So, like we at Immutable been having a lot of success creating partnerships and signing on studios from these areas, and these are areas with like deep, deep, deep game development industries. So that's very much like friendly territory for Web three games. Europe is in the middle. I don't think Europe is hostile. I don't think they're overly warm like in the east, and I think this is what really helped us with Ubisoft. And then I think the US specifically is more towards one side where there's a lot more hostility towards Web three. But the US is a massive gaming market, so even you know five percent of player base, so there's just like yeah, actually I just want to play a fun game, and now I get to trade some things with other players, which already exists in some games such as CS:GO. That's a really big market. I think that's softening as we move through the different phases. And I think, in my opinion, why some of these bigger companies are testing this out. I think Nike had little to lose. I don't think their fan base actually even knew what blockchain was. And so they're actually able to launch these projects. For me, companies like Epic, for example. Epic is an interesting situation where they are not hostile, like Steam is, for example, like Valve is. And um, they do allow Web3 projects to launch on their store. However, we're at an interesting intersection where with Web3 projects emit NFTs or tokens to their players through engagement, through purchases, doesn't matter how they do it. But if they do, the rating agencies actually say this is a cash payout and they'll rate you as 18 plus, which is normally not a problem, except for that Epic has a policy of not allowing 18 plus games on their platform. And so there's this interesting shifting like, design framework we have to work around where, hey, maybe with Epic, we just go to them with a full-blown the Web 2 game. And on the web, we have the full-blown Web 3 element outside of their platform. And now you can actually get the ratings you need to be on there. So that's kind of Epic, but I think it's a really quickly evolving space. And then when you look at the, the big studios like Ubisoft, in my opinion, like when you look at the large publishers and studios globally, especially in the West, you normally have your really big ones, say like an Activision, right? And they have a number of cash cows between Candy Crush, Call of Duty, and World of Warcraft generating billions for the company. And you normally don't want to mess around with that model. Ubisoft is actually one of the larger ones where they have a number of smaller cash cows and they are looking for ways to be able to dethrone the top. Right? They really want to climb those last few positions in terms of the like, world's biggest publishers. They have a number of IPs that have a lot of value. But I think being in Europe and being in this position where they're not comfortable, they want to grow, actually opened up their minds to like, hey, let's look at Web3. I think there's an interesting opportunity here. I had a call with them less than a year ago to discuss like, Gods and Chain. And they were kind of like flabbergasted at the huge shift in paradigm from like how players think of the game and the assets of the game and how community management actually directly translate to massive amounts of revenue per player, And like, this is something we're very interested in. Like, tell us more.
1: So Daniel, I want to jump into the worlds of trading card games, which I believe is what Gods Unchained is. You know, I remember playing Magic the Gathering back in high school. I know Pokemon is big in it. Like, even Avery's business partner, if you will, Gary V has Vee Friends, which like is really going deep. And I see tons of content happening in that space. I would just love to like understand the sort of world of trading card games specifically, and then have you kind of in the second part of your answer, maybe just tell us about how the gameplay is for Gods Unchained, what's sort of interesting and innovative about it.
2: When we look at trading card games, I think the biggest, easiest way to think of it are physical cards, right? Because you can actually trade them with users. What we've seen in the digital space is more of what we call like competitive card games, like your Hearthstones, your Magic: The Gathering Arena, your Yu-Gi-Oh, etc., and Marvel Snap. And that's not so much about trading at all, because there is no trading. It's kind of about making sure you have the latest content so that you're competitive and climbing the ranks. What's interesting about trading card games in the digital space, like Gods and Chain, is we have to shift how we design the life cycle of the game because we can't make the previous cards obsolete, which is the business model of your Web 2 CCGs, competitive card games. We need to make sure that we're always having essentially a growing pool of different cards that are always going to be useful to some degree, either through a collector's perspective or through a gameplay perspective. And that's kind of like the underlying foundation. The implications that has can actually get really, really complicated. So perfect example is less than a month ago, we launched our next expansion. And now players have three different ways to actually get cards. They can buy packs from us, which gives you randomized cards. They can play for the cards in different game modes, or they can buy the specific cards off other players. And what we've seen is very much this interesting balancing act of like, are they going to buy more packs? So they're going to buy from other players. They're actually going to play for the cards. And this element of buying from other players is normally many, many, many times bigger than what they would spend on packs or spend in a premium game mode. And so like this trading space, like this economy for it, becomes very, very complex and very, very large. And it's something where we got on a few learnings, but I wouldn't call us experts. Maybe we're like experts relative to everyone else, but there's just so much, so much unknown in the trading space, just because humans are complicated creatures.
0: I love that. Relative experts is a nice sort of categorization. I feel like I'm learning so much about trading card games just through sort of hearing your perspective and more recently sort of seeing some of these Web3 brands embrace that approach as well. Daniel, tell us a little bit about some stats, some numbers. How is Gods Unchained doing?
2: Um, pretty well, but it hasn't been an easy ride. I would say like every other Web3 game, we kind of you know really surf that bull market wave. And then as the bear markets settle in, you start shedding a lot of these players that are really looking just for that value. And the longer that bear run lasts, you know, the harsher it can get. At the same time, throughout the bull run, this is before my time, there's always a scramble to really generate value and content for users. And so the game was built extremely fast about getting more and more cars out there as fast as possible. And what happened is as we entered the bear run, and we realized that appetite from users to spend thousands and thousands and thousands, thousands of dollars on cards is drawing up and now they're looking for time they want that quality engagement we had to kind of step back and say there are a lot of foundational things for gods and chain that we need to build out things people have been asking for things the game needs to actually be on par with your traditional card games and so we've spent like the last i want to say since since about february march actually pivoting to that to build a number of foundational things that includes new game modes it includes a number of like internal systems that allow us to do things a lot faster, and it includes the mobile build, which we're getting very close to releasing a public version of. And so when we look at the stats of Gods Unchained, it's been rough since we entered the bear, but we actually saw a pivot starting a few months ago with one of our foundational things, which we call sealed mode, and we launched our expansion. We saw like a really nice tail, people really flooding back into the game, and so we're up, I think, like 20% in terms of players just in the last three, four weeks. And what makes me really happy about that is when we look at the quality of the players coming in, they're folks there to play. They're folks there that want to grab some cards, try to climb the ranks. They're not there looking for, hey, how do I grind out crypto tokens, you know, gods, or how do I grind out cards so I can sell? So that's really nice because I feel it's more like long lasting growth. So we're on a really good trajectory. I know we're one of the top 10 Web3 games. I think what's most interesting for me are two major facts regarding Gods and Chain Is The first one is we have hundreds of millions of dollars worth of trading every year. This way eclipses like our revenue for Gods and Chain, right? And I think that's one of the fascinating things I find about Web3. The other one is when players do spend with us directly, they're spending numbers that any traditional game would only dream of. So back when I used to work on Hearthstone when we looked at like the US for example one of the most lucrative markets over 6 months players who spend might spend maybe about $90 right like on average we nearly double that in a single expansion like within a few weeks and so I think a lot of this comes down to how web3 is structured how the economy is structured how players perceptions change So this was kind of like the facts that I really like to hammer home that Web3 really improves the odds that a game can be financially successful and continue to develop.
1: Daniel, I want you to teach me something, which is a challenge I always have. I've spent actually hours and hours and hours playing Marvel Snap. My daughter was big into Magic. It always did feel like if you wanted to spend the money to acquire the perfect deck, that you would just have such a leg up on everybody else And I do think, one, economically, it's amazing that you guys are doing hundreds of millions of dollars a year in the economy. I'm sure you guys get some revenue on that. And then secondly, thinking through that, like I know these are strategy games. What do you say to someone who says, oh, the wealthiest people can just buy the decks to compete at a higher level?
2: Yeah, that's a great one. So we actually have a really good partner called GU Decks, and they uh, connect to our API. They have all the information, and they show the best performing decks. And one of my favorite things is seeing someone come in and say, yeah, I've been playing with this $20 deck for like the last two months, and I love defeating someone who had a $2,000 deck, you know. And uh, these are like really big design challenges. And the fact that right now we're probably close to 1,900 different cards. And so like the design challenges gets bigger every time we increase the pool of cards available. But this isn't kind of an Axie situation where you really want like your rarest Axies, right? This is a situation where... The number of possibilities are so massive that people are always finding out what is the next best performing deck. And then people flock to that. And you see those card prices go up, right? As they buy them off the market. And then someone finds a counter to that deck. And like, oh, actually I went to the different domain. I went to a light domain and it is countering this deck. And people flock to that one. And so it's very interesting seeing how people flock to different, say, metas for the game and how that actually is immediately reflected in asset prices on the marketplace.
1: So you're saying luck can get you most of the way and then it's strategy. And if you have a couple extra dollars or a great card, you're doing well.
2: Well, I mean, we've done this. We did this at Hearthstone before as well. It's like when you get the best players and you give them the worst decks, they still get towards like the top ranks. And so like one thing we're really, really focused on is the element of skill in the game. Trying to reduce randomness where it doesn't feel good. Like good randomness is, Great. Bad randomness is terrible. You feel you're, you know, you don't have control or autonomy within the game. That one comes down more to like card design. But there's always lessons learned. Like for example, we just launched a new crafting system, so now you can actually get some of the old cards and craft them into one of the new cards. And we had, you know, done some modeling, and we're like, yeah, you know, if people want these epic cards, it'll cost them maybe like nine, ten bucks, right, to get all the materials if they don't have any. We were wrong. The moment we put those recipes up there, people came in, scooped up all the cards, and the card prices pumped by like eight hundred percent. And then people are like, "Oh, this card's going to cost me ninety dollars just to make." Like, wow, okay, that was unforeseen. And so then people start saying, "Oh, this game might be pay to win because I can't get this card unless I spend this much." It's like, yeah, it's one of those elements of the open marketplace, right? It's something we as developers need to balance to make sure that the accessibility of fun in the game is always present, but always allowing the marketplace also to function so that players can balance the economy amongst themselves.
0: I love it. So your economics background is like really playing in here. There's levels of strategy, there's levels of economics, there's levels of randomness, there's levels of some twinge of luck in there too.
2: Oh, 100%. I love geeking out about all of this. And the moments some of these things come up, I'm like, I'm going to cancel some of these calls. I just want to look into the spreadsheet right now and see what are players doing? Like, what's happening to all these things?
0: Are there things that players love that were a surprise to you? And then, you know, on the flip side, are there things that you thought would, like, totally hit that you're like, huh, that didn't hit as much as you expected?
2: Yeah, so one of them is one of the more recent releases we did about two months ago, which is our premium game mode called Sealed Mode. And what seal build is, is you buy in, you get a pool of cards to make a deck from. Now, you don't have to own these cards. None of these cards have to be owned. It's just a randomized pool of cards. You put together your deck, and then you go for your run. And your run essentially is, you can reach up to seven wins or up to three losses. The better you do, the better the rewards. And this kind of plays back to this theory that I've been trying to implement in the last few blockchain studios I was at, which is this idea of, monetizing demand for rewards as opposed to monetizing the reward itself the big difference is like i can sell you a card for ten dollars or i can let you go play for that card for two dollars right and you might get other things as well and you can start getting this basket of rewards depending how well you do when you players had asked for it i had estimated you know oh, we'll have you know a few hundred people play this play this every month that just blew us away by far the fact that we actually made some token utility. So you can only buy in using our native token, 15 gods. And now we actually have the levers to play with, hey, if you get the five wins, you actually break even, you get 15 gods back. If you get the six and seven, you actually make a little bit of extra gods tokens. It's very hard to get seven, by the way. And you also get cards as rewards, you get unique cosmetics. And so now we actually have people who become super, super hardcore addicts at this game mode. And it's, completely blew us away in terms of the level of engagement, how many players play it, how much they love it. And what I love most about this kind of like being the EP of the game is I don't need an engineer to run it. We actually have people going and changing numbers and testing new things. And so that actually was a huge, huge win for the team just from a couple of months ago. And things that kind of like shocked us that people did not like whatsoever was for the stats expansion, we did a promotion where if you came in and you picked a side in the conflict, that's part of the story, you get two legendary cards. And we're like, this is a promotion card. This is for people to be engaged with the story and to bring back people who might have left. Obviously, people created a bunch of fake accounts. They started you know, essentially farming these legendary cards because they're NFTs. And originally I thought like, it doesn't matter. Like this is a promotional card. Everyone's going to have it. It's not meant to be sold or traded. You know, it's just an NFT people were actually really mad at that. It got really annoyed. And it kind of like drowned out the rest of the story and what we are going for with this. Because even like when you give out these promotional cards, people are looking at this like, I want to get something of value, not something that's been like, let's say, printed down to like a cent on the marketplace. So that was kind of like a good lesson learned for us there. even things that are meant to be promotional and be very widespread, people still have attached a number value to that.
1: So Daniel, the... Primary amount of energy that I see in the gaming space when it comes to conversation, kind of on the brand side and kind of in like the kind of more macro gaming environment seems still focused on the large distribution platforms, the Fortnites, the Robloxes, the Minecrafts. You guys are an independent studio. You're producing a bunch of great games, as are a lot of other people in the space. You know, is the holy grail of Web3 game design and building about figuring out the ways where at some point, Gods Unchained is playable within a Roblox or a Fortnite, or do you think that the behaviors will start to gravitate more towards, you know, just just destination gameplay versus having to be within a larger ecosystem?
2: That's a great question. I would say for the platforms to be successful there, you have to contribute a lot for the platforms to really elevate you, right? And I think a lot of these, you're partially at the mercy of what the platforms want to do in terms of exposure. Your game might get and so we kind of look at these like hey would i love to be able to launch on steam but yeah i think that'd be cool reaching like you know this new audience absolutely get me more exposure but it's not a guaranteed win and i don't think being on a platform guarantees that you win and you you know grow a huge user base we were able to launch on epics game store originally and we saw a nice little bump of players coming in and it wasn't a game changer for us I think that's the main thing to call out is being somewhere doesn't mean you win. It's really down to the product and how well you're able to match the right player to the right game. It doesn't exclude the fact that we are working with platforms and speaking very closely to them on the Immutable side because we ourselves are building out a platform, right? And so ZKVM and Starkex or X, all these things kind of form the basis for the tools we're building, which God's Chain has kind of been at the forefront. So. Things from like primary mints to users, randomized mints. Now we have Passport actually being integrated into Gods and Chain. And for those who don't know, Passport is a new account and wallet system that Immutable has developed. And so we're integrating that into Gods and Chain as a really eat your own dog food type of approach to make sure this is working for users. The order book for Immutable as well. And so we have all these different products that we're building, including checkout, that we begin to implement in our own game. So we have Gods and Chain, we have Guild of Guardians and some of our closer partner games. And that's when I think like the partnership with platforms actually becomes a lot stronger because they have an offering. We kind of like level our offering on top of theirs. And all of a sudden, anyone who's building on this has a much better like value proposition to build on top of. But if you look at individual games and like individual studios trying to, uh, you know, really make it out there, the only platform I think is make or break is if you're big on YouTube or Twitch. Like, there's no secret about it. Like, content is king with games. So, like, those are the platforms that matter.
1: That's the distribution platform you need.
2: That's the distribution platform. (laughs) And whether it's on a website or the app store or to EGS, it doesn't matter as much as long as, like, if people are playing and talking about your game, people will find your game.
1: Avery, do you foresee a VFriends God Unchained collab card game?
0: Who knows? Who knows? But, you know, I did want to... Agree with you, Daniel, on your point around social being such a key driver of these, because it is so critical. And I think a lot of people underestimate that. But brand is built in social, like with or without things that you're posting, gamers are posting, they're giving their reviews, they're giving their takes, they're streaming, etc. I think it's so critical for the gaming industry and how you know the rollout of these actually happens from a discovery perspective, but also from a re-engagement perspective. So I love that you brought that up. I'm curious what advice you'd have for any Any other groups who are sort of looking to build in the Web3 gaming space? Like any, you know, top three lessons
2: that you've learned? I think the first one is regarding the community. If you thought it was bad in traditional gaming, Web3 is like cranked up to 11. And bad in a good way because it's in, you know, traditional gaming, say World of Warcraft. Back when I worked on that, community was huge, massive fans. Anytime you would change things within the game that impacted their class, there would be uproars <laughs> if it was, you know, under, for example, people would get very angry. When you move into web three, now that information feedback of like, how much value am I getting for myself out of this game is visible. And what I've learned is that when players have this perspective, and they're going to have it in web three, no matter what you do. And that's actually not a bad thing is that they actually view you as custodians of the value of their collection. Right. And there's General thing is like, yes, you guys can't you know promise me APY you know guaranteed asset appreciation. It's not going to happen. However, we do expect you guys to be good custodians of the collection itself, and that's something that we're working a lot with right now. And making sure that every time we create new content, we are bringing the old content along with us to kind of do our part in that. The second lesson I would say is you shouldn't sacrifice the game core loop for the economy, but you have to make sure the economy doesn't collapse. That's kind of like your basics that you need to do. And there's this, I don't want to say like a big debate, but there's always this push and pull with game studios right now of um, how crazy do we go in the economy? Or maybe we should just scale it back as much as we can. And I think in the end it's like, A lot of studios are kind of losing the end goal of like players just want to feel that the time, money, and effort they put into this game isn't being like depreciated over time because of the studio's decisions.
0: It's an understandable feeling.
2: (laughs) Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. I completely get that. But that's completely new to Web2 game developers, right? That was never anything on their radar. And at least the studios I've worked on in the past, talking to Web2 developers, it's very much this idea of like, I just want to give everyone NFTs and I want everyone just to come in and play and I'm going to give you some tokens. Congratulations. Right. And it's this idea of like being very, very, very generous, which works in Web2. You can imagine any mobile game you open up and you start going through the first hour, you're probably going to get some premium currency. You're going to get some soft currency. It's about being very generous to get people sucked in. But what a lot of Web2 developers don't realize is like, That generosity can actually become a negative, especially early on, because now people are like, there's no value to anything you're giving me. I can see that. And then the third lesson learned, I think, is this is a spicy topic. Ownership doesn't matter.
1: Hold on. This is blockchain, guys.
2: It's a blockchain, right? Right. But ownership is an empty word to gamers, right? Even Web3 gamers. And one of the first things I learned early on back when I was at Big Time was it's not the element that it's on a blockchain to prove ownership that matters. It's this element that I can do what I want with it that matters. And so when we kind of look at rather than using kind of like ownership as a buzzword, no, 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 no. For Gods Chain, it's trading cards. Like you might find a very rare card and someone's going to want to give you 20, 30 bucks for that card. And then you can buy other cards. For others, it's, you know what? I want to get my entire collection and I want to lend it out to people, right? And so like these actual like tangible things people can do with their collections are what actually matters to users. When we kind of extrapolate it and say, that, oh yeah, it's true digital ownership. I think we kind of lose ourselves in kind of like this blockchain purist conversation. And last year people spent $200 billion and they lost it all. It's it's like, not true, right? People spent money for a service and for an experience. And now what we're saying is like, you're to spend money for a service and an experience and an asset that you can do things you want with. And I think like, taking that approach and being a little bit more humble and understanding what players are looking for, it really helps you like, with your messaging and your design around the games.
1: Well, Daniel, thank you for sharing that wisdom with us. You know, I think both Avery and I are really fascinated with the game world and come from different perspectives of it. But I think it was really great to hear.
0: I think we need to clip that section of ownership doesn't matter. You know, I love somebody who has a perspective. And so of you will just say things that are vanilla. I love that take. You know, that's, I think, probably contrary to the way a lot of Web3 gamers, a lot of Web3 enthusiasts think. But, you know, I think combining your experience working with AAA games with what you're seeing in Web3, it's, it's interesting to hear that as your perspective.
2: Yeah, I've realized it's become spicy, but I guess is the thing is i talk talking to gamers and say ownership to like, so? It's like, what does that mean? It's like, well, I own my game on Steam. And like, then you gave him the technical. like, no, you don't, actually. Valve owns your game on Steam. And people are like, no, no, I own my game. Right? And so, like, you get into, like, this very, like, fruitless conversation. But when you go to them, and it's like, no, actually, you know what? If you have, like, all these cards in Hearthstone, and then like, you don't want to play Hearthstone anymore, or like, you actually 90% of them you don't use... You can actually lend them out to people or you can actually do other things with them. Maybe even other games can read that you have these and they can offer things such as like, you know, affiliate programs that can look at your collection size and allow you to climb new leaderboards. And that's stuff we're working on with our other games. But you really have to kind of like give them a clear picture of what will they be doing as opposed to more nebulous things like ownership.
1: All right, Daniel. Well, thank you for spending the time with us. It was great hearing your perspective and what you brought to the table. Really excited to look into the future of God's Unchained and what you guys are building over at Immutable. And uh, thanks for being on the podcast.
2: No, I appreciate it, Sam. Avery, thanks for having me on. This was fun.
0: Mm -hmm. Sam, I'm not much of a gamer, so I feel like I just learned a ton from Daniel and from his experiences being at places like Activision and now what he's doing in the Web3 world. So this was a fascinating guest where I really learned a lot. And I really appreciate his takes and his perspective. He sees both sides of the coin. And now being in this world for a few years, he's like very clear on what he thinks really matters to gamers. So at the end of the day, that's who matters for Web3 gaming.
1: Well, and I think there's so much nuance in the game world. You know, we talked about it before, but... You know, literally from the moment that video games, at home video games became an industry, they've been the largest entertainment segment that exists, right? Mm -hmm. And I just think we don't think of it if you're not a gamer, but you just don't realize how big some of these titles are, what the upside is if you crack the nut. A lot of people do believe that the next kind of big rush into web three will come through the gaming side. And I think all of us have played that game a little bit. So it's fascinating to, I think also see so many people whether it's daniel or when we had ryan wyatt back you know in the polygon days who's now just uh, moved over to optimism who was at youtube gaming for eight years like he saw it people are really building they're trying to do amazing stuff and i think it's a category that we should just continue to pay attention to and as we were saying like i think there is a tremendous amount of like credit due to the robloxes and uh, the and nikes and all the people who are testing these new opportunities to get gamers a little bit more comfortable with what ownership does mean, even though Daniel believes ownership doesn't matter. So really excited to sort of see where that goes.
0: I didn't see that one coming. So it's an interesting take. And I think it's one that's rooted in like actual consumer insights versus theory. I think a lot of people do live in like theory land, like theoretically. I mean, ownership, from my perspective, ownership is important. But also from my perspective, perception is reality. And the consumer is the ultimate arbiter of what matters for brands for you know, engaging in that sort of consumer sector. So I thought that that was a great take. I really enjoyed having him on. So thank you for making that suggestion.
1: Yeah. yeah. One other thing I think we just forget about is time as a currency doesn't always have to equal value as a currency for that time, if you will. Yeah. Right. And so there are people who are playing Counter-Strike and they get really lucky and pull a rare skin and they sell it for $100,000. Like that happens multiple times a year. But like I have a friend who literally is on level 4,500 of Candy Crush and she just it's like kind of how she like deals with her anxiety and stress right so for her the value is just that she has this thing which is like never ending it's infinite she's not going to sell her position on candy crush to someone else who wants to start at level 4500 and i just feel like for her it served a completely different purpose which casual gaming sometimes does which is like just a break and i think there's also just a ton of value that like people who play games like just the fact that it's not focusing on real life it's like i know i can match these bricks and I will try to win and get to the next level. And that may be like the value we all needed in the end anyway.
0: It's so funny because I've personally just been into Duolingo recently and it's like kind of addictive, which is weird. I'm trying to get my Spanish better and I like play it every day. Like they're so smart with their app icon changes. Shout out to Duolingo. They are a Vader partner and I love it. You know, it's like a stress relief. Oh, I'm, you know, waiting in the Uber or just like have five minutes to burn. And instead of like scrolling Instagram, I find myself going to like learn Spanish vocabulary words. And I'm like, yes, I love that.
1: Avery, I'm sorry, I have to disagree. The stress I have when the bird tells me you have one hour left to continue your 180 day streak, like freaks me out.
0: Wow, you're up to 180. I'm super impressed.
1: I'm at 180 right now. Yes.
0: Let's go. What's your language, Sam? Is it Portuguese? My Spanish
1: es muy good. <laughs> <Es muy bueno.
0: laughs>
1: Adios, Gen Z. Adios, Gen Z. Nos vemos.